0: Hebrews 10, and we're going to pick up the reading at verse 19 and read through to the end of the chapter. Hebrews 10 from verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Our text this evening is verses 24 and 25. Congregation, I have to give the parents a warning as we begin This evening I'm going to be using some words that some might consider dirty, Uh, vulgar, uh, foul language. In fact, some of the the adults here might be a little offended by some of the language that I use tonight uh, because to use these words in some Christian circles, people might look at you in utter disgust. People might call you some rather nasty names if you use these words. Well, what are these dirty words that I'll be using this evening? Here we go. The dirty words that I'm intentionally and deliberately using this evening are words like obligation, and duty, and responsibility, and commitments. Now, in Bishop Dahl, over the last uh, few months, we've been thinking about uh, church membership, and we've been thinking about how the Bible itself assumes that people are members of a a visible church. They're not just members of some invisible church out there somewhere. They're, They're members of a visible congregation of God's people. And everyone knows who these members are. The leaders know uh, who they're responsible for and uh, the members of a church know who their leaders are, who they have to answer to. Everyone can see who they are. And there are many blessings of being a member of a local congregation of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we need to remember it's not just good enough to be a member on paper, Having your name on the membership list of a church is not really good enough. For membership to be a blessing to you and a blessing to others, we need to be members in practice. And that means we have to to take up the duties, the obligations, the responsibilities of church membership if we're to be a blessing to others. So, congregation, what are your duties and obligations and responsibilities to one another as church members. Now, if you don't like uh, the the dirty words I've been using and you're getting all uncomfortable with them and you feel like you need a a safe zone where you can get away from such challenging words, let me try and put it another way. Uh, What does the New Testament call us to in our mutual relationships to, to other brothers and sisters in the faith? Well, it's pretty clear in the reading we just had from, from the Apostle John. It calls us to love one another, doesn't it? Uh, to love one another in, in practical terms. And, and all the, the author of Hebrews is, is, is trying to do here is he's trying to flesh out for us, this is what love for one another looks like. Or using the dirty words I began with, these are your responsibilities and obligations as church members. And we're going to consider uh, two of them this evening. There are, of course, more in the Scriptures but there's two in the text here. First obligation. Our first obligation as Christians, as members of a local congregation, is that we must give deliberate thought to the spiritual lives of our brothers and sisters in the faith. We see this in our text, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And the word consider... There means to, to fix your eyes upon something and give it careful consideration and careful, careful thought. And, and what we're being urged here is to, to lift our eyes off ourselves and to fix our eyes uh, on our, our brothers and sisters uh, in the faith, to, to think about uh, their spiritual struggles, to think about their physical needs, to, to think about their challenges and, and heartaches. It's, it is, of course, possible to be a, a church member on paper and do none of these things. But this is one of the primary obligations we have as Christians to look to the interests of the person sitting next to you and behind you and in front of you. And this, of course, is a in our culture. It's a it's a revolutionary way of thinking about church life because, as of, as you're probably aware, you know in our culture consumer is king. That's why people. Church shop, they're not thinking about others, well, how can I be a great blessing to others? They're thinking about, well, I'm the consumer and how can my personal needs and desires and preferences be met? Uh, Someone once likened the prevailing attitude to church life as seeing the church like a restaurant. And uh, at a restaurant, of course, you you make demands and and if the the establishment doesn't meet your demands, well, you you go somewhere else and you you take your, your business elsewhere. So, when, and when the church is a restaurant, you say, "Waiter, don't like this sermon? Take it away and bring another one that I like." Or you say, uh, uh, "Waiter, over here, uh, I don't like this instrument or this song. Can can you, can you bring another one?" Or uh, uh, "Waiter, uh, over here, I don't like this these people here. Can you can I shift them up the back or put them out of the road here so I don't have to don't have to be near them?" Um, and what happens when when consumer is king is that church life becomes a, about me. But the right of Hebrews is saying, well, church life is not about me. Uh, Being a church member means I'm going to have to consider uh, others. I don't come to church and expect people to to make a fuss of me. I I come to church and expect to to minister uh, to others, to consider others, to lift my eyes upon them. And we notice here that this is not just a job for the elders and the ministers. I'm sure people ask you, well, who's the the minister in the, in the Reformed Church of Dovedale. And I hope you don't always just say, well, Andre does all the ministry here. Uh, uh, biblically speaking, uh, we're all meant to minister. Uh, we're all meant to, to serve. The minister, of course, the pastor has a particular task, special role, but notice the text says, and it's repeated time and time again through this chapter, uh, verse 24, let us... Let us, let all of us, it's an all-inclusive phrase, let every single Christian do this. Not just those who are mature in the faith, not just the the older folk, but all of us, to consider how we might stir one another up to to love and good works. Now, the word uh, stir in verse 24 it's actually a bit weak in terms of translation. A, a better word there is to provoke. We're meant to to provoke one another, and I'm sure, can you know, I most of the, the families have one of those children in their in their family who who likes to provoke the other ones? You know, you tell the kids to go and brush their teeth, and there's this one kid, and they hang on to the toothpaste for ages, and they. They go to put it down and just when the other one goes to pick it up, they take it back and, and then they take a bit longer and then the other person finally gets the toothpaste and they accidentally bump them and they get toothpaste everywhere and that child thumps them. They've provoked them. And and here, this this is the idea. We're meant to provoke each other, not to provoke a, a negative response or, or to provo- provoke a discontent uh, in the church, but we're clearly meant to provoke e- each other to what the text says is is love and good works. We're to provoke each other to love, love for God, love for each other, love for the world out there. We're to provoke each other to good deeds, to stir one another up, to go and do those good works God has prepared in advance for us to do. We're commanded to provoke. We all have a ministry of provocation. And this uh, ministry of provocation actually requires um, careful planning and plotting and scheming. It's not something that generally happens spontaneously for us. Uh, To be able to do this, we need to give it some careful thought. There needs to be some preparations. What a a wonderful way to prepare for worship. Uh, Your repertoire of preparing for for evening worship. uh, you've, You've had your afternoon nap for some of you and and, and, and you've got your clothes ready, you've prayed, you've got your Bible, you've got your store of peppermints, here's something else for you to do. Give careful consideration to who you're going to provoke. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, as we gathered as God's people, we had just one person in mind we are going to provoke to some love and good works. If we thought about, my elder, how am I going to help my elder in their calling? How am I going to provoke them? Or we think of that, uh, that, that young mother and we think, how can I provoke her? I'm like, I might tell her I've been praying for her and in, uh, in, in the week ahead I'll, I'll come and help her to, to do something. Or, or perhaps you just think of someone serving in the church and, and, and you know it's just some, some job no one pays attention to and you think, I do that every week and I'm just going to go up to them and I'm say, thank you, you're doing a wonderful job and I want to encourage you in it. That's the idea, we're to provoke one another. Surely, surely there is someone we know in church life we can provoke to love and good deeds. And uh, we all know provocation has an effect. That's the idea of it. It's, it's meant to get someone to do something. On Monday mornings when I check my emails, sometimes I get the uh, occasional uh, provocation uh, in relation to a Sunday sermon. Um, there's, there's one member in particular, these, these are positive provocations, um, There's one member in particular, and he likes to send through these witty rhymes about the sermon and what's been helpful and how it's taught him certain things. And of course you know what that does. In the week ahead it provokes me to give myself again to my labours with increased enthusiasm and vigour. That's what provocation does. That's what we can do for each other That's what we're obliged to do for each other, to provoke each other to keep the faith, to provoke each other to use the gifts that Christ has given us to build up the body of Christ, to provoke each other to greater fidelity to Christ and the gospel, to provoke each other to to more faithful witness to Christ in the world, to provoke each other to bolder obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever thought you would be called to the ministry of Provocation, but that's the calling for all of us. That's our first obligation as church members, to provoke one another. That's obligation one. Now, obligation two. Obligation two is to meet regularly and consistently with our fellow Christians. Look at verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. And this, of course, is the Bible's clearest statement that we should gather together for corporate worship. So here I go again with with another dirty word. If you're a Christian and if you're a member here, you have an obligation to gather to worship with God's people. This is not a church tradition. This is not simply some reformed church thing that we do. This is the word of God. Do not give up meeting together. Or we can frame it positively, uh, keep on meeting consistently and regularly with other members of your local church. But I want you to notice here that this isn't just about kind of attending a worship service. This isn't just about being here on Sunday night and kind of slipping out as soon as the service is finished. This is actually connected with what has actually gone before it. This is meant to be the context in which our ministry of provocation takes place. It's very difficult to provoke one another to love and good deeds if we don't actually meet together. You can't provoke anyone when you're sitting at home listening to a sermon on your MP3 player. Uh, this, this gathering of the church, this is where we're meant to do our best provoking. Corporate worship services, fellowship group meetings, uh, prayer meetings, this is where we provoke one another. It's interesting that um, we see here that uh, people forsaking the gathering of the church uh, isn't a modern phenomenon. It was already happening. Uh, we see in the, in the first century here, it was already a problem. There were some who just stopped. Obviously, turning up to the corporate gatherings of the church. You know, perhaps there's that familiar pattern where uh, the person is inconsistent in attendance for three months. Then, then all of a sudden, is professing Christian. You, you don't see them in church anymore, and then the elders go and visit them. Kind of, um, and a year later, they're saying, "Well, I don't need to be in worship. You're not know, going worship God when I'm tramping through the hills or when I'm at the beach or whatever." Why this neglect of gathering together? Well, perhaps it's because these Christians were were being persecuted. Uh, We we read there that these Christians were being persecuted. I mean, they were even getting their their belongings uh, confiscated. Uh, We're we're told later on in in chapter 12 that there was the chance these these Christians might be called to shed their blood for their faith. That's perhaps a a pretty weighty reason, uh, some might say, for not gathering. You might die for your faith. One of the things that impresses me about the Belgic Confession article that we read a little earlier uh, is, is not just that it uses all the dirty words that I've been using this evening, but it urges Christians not to withdraw from the visible church. It uses the strongest possible language to tell us Don't withdraw from the church. Don't give up meeting with the church. It states that if you're a Christian, it's your obligation to join this assembly, wherever God has established it, even if civil authorities and royal decrees forbid and death and physical punishment result. Has it sunk in? Don't give up meeting together, even if it gets you killed. And you've got to realise that many people who subscribe to the Belgian Confession did that and died for it. They died for this belief. You can never say that the Belgian Confession is just some dry, intellectual, doctrinal tome. These people died for these truths. And one of the truths they were willing to die for was church membership and the obligation and the need, the need for us to gather together as believers. And I hope you'll understand... It becomes clear why they saw this as such a great need. Now, the text doesn't actually tell us why the people weren't gathering together. Perhaps it could have been any number of reasons. But, but the point is it's crystal clear. You, you can't be living out New Testament Christianity if you're not meeting regularly and consistently with other believers. You just can't fulfil the commands of the New Testament if you're not in a visible gathering of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's actually another direction this text is going with this demand that we not forsake gathering together. Because the context of this passage, as, as we read on, you will have noticed, the context of this passage is that these people were in danger of apostatizing from the faith. There was a danger that people might turn away from faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and these commands are set in the context of, if you, if you want to persevere, if you want to keep on keeping on in the Christian faith, this is what you need. You need people provoking you. You need to be gathering together in the visible bodies of visible body of believers. Um, you need to persevere, and these are the things that you need to do in order to persevere. In fact, this is the whole aim of the Book of Hebrews. Uh, the Book of Hebrews was written to, to struggling Hebrew Christians to tell them persevere in the faith. Don't give up uh, in, on your faith in Christ, because in becoming Christians, these uh, Hebrew believers thought they'd lost. Because what they'd lost is temple worship. Temple worship was impressive, outwardly magnificent. Uh, temple worship was impressive. And, and what did they gain? They'd gain kind of plain Christian worship, just the preaching of the word, just the sacraments. They thought they'd lost. Um, they, they'd lost the, the influence of being part of the, the Jewish community. And now they were Christians, despised little... Uh, Subsect people thought of of, of Judaism. They thought they'd lost by forsaking uh, what they had in the past. And, And the exhortation to them was, if you are Christians, you have not lost. You have gained. You have gained infinitely greater riches than there ever could be in Judaism. I mean, it's the same for us. I mean, if you're a Christian, you've gained. You haven't lost anything wherever you've come from. You don't lose anything. You gain because in becoming a Christian, you gain Christ. You gain Christ. And, and the whole thrust of the book of Hebrews is to show us that Christ is far better uh, than anything the Jews ever had in their past. Christ is a better leader than Moses ever was. Christ is a better priest than the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. Christ is a better sacrifice than any of the Old Testament sacrifices ever were. Christ is a better mediator of a better covenant, the new covenant in his blood. And the book of Hebrews is saying, how can you go back? How can you go back? And if you don't want to go back, this is what you need to do. Provoke one another. Meet together. Persevere in the faith. So your perseverance in the Christian faith, in a sense, depends upon fulfilling these obligations. Uh, so this puts the should I worship on Sunday twice question in a different perspective. Let, let's phrase that question in Hebrews 10 language. Do you want to make it to the heavenly kingdom? Are you concerned about brothers and sisters that gather with you that they too will persevere Until the end, well, gather frequently and regularly to provoke one another to love and good deeds. So there's two obligations here in this passage that each and every Christian who's a member of this church is called to. This is what the New Testament commands of us. This is what you've actually vowed to do if you're a member of the church here. This is what you need to do to persevere in the faith. But... Why else should we take up these obligations? Well, uh, clearly in the context here, there's, there's another reason, and that is uh, grace. God's grace compels us to take up these obligations. Um, these, these verses here actually mark a turning point in the book of Hebrews. Uh, here in chapter 10, the book of Hebrews changes from the indicative mode, so the mode of this is what God has done, this is what God has done in Christ, this is what he's done for you, and it changes to the imperative mode which is the the mood the mood of command. This is what you are to do in response. This is what you are called to do in light of God's grace. And here in particular, um, you get almost a, a summary of, of what's gone before in the whole ten chapters uh, of, of the book of Hebrews. So you get this summary in verses uh, 19, uh, 20, 21 and 22. Uh, of the grace of God to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And and then there's there's two uh, elements in particular of God's grace that that were shown there. Uh, There in verse 19, uh, we're reminded that we have confidence to, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And in the Hebrew mind, you've got to understand the one place you could not enter was the holy place in the tabernacle. You couldn't even get near it. way, And so that meant you you could not come close to God. You couldn't be in the presence of God. You couldn't truly know him and be near him. And now, through the the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's a way for for the Christian to come into the holy place. Uh, You could say, as it were, for the Christian to come through the the palace gates, to go past the, the guardhouse, to go down the hall, to go through the dining room, and to come to the Father's bedroom and and and, and we don't have to tiptoe into the bedroom we're welcome to come with confidence to the father that's that's the blessing that we have with Christ as our as our mediator sinful fallen human beings such as we are coming with boldness boldness to the god of all glory and purity knowing that he'll welcome us and not only do we have do we have boldness like verse 21 reminds us we have a a great priest over the house of God. This is the second aspect of God's grace that uh, the book of Hebrews wants to highlight for us. And when we think of the priesthood, we often think of sacrifices, and of course of Christ offering the, the perfect sacrifice, but the priest was called also to offer supplications and prayers and petitions on behalf of his people. See, the priest knew his people and he would come and he would pray for his people. Jesus Christ knows his people. He knows us. He knows our fears. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our struggles. He knows our temptations and he petitions the Father in every area we need petitioning for. He carries his people on his heart, so to speak, and he comes into the presence of his Father and he prays for us. You want to know the only reason that you'll be able to get to next Sunday and still be a Christian? It's because you have a high priest in heaven. And he prays that your faith will not fail. Hebrews 7.25 says he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. What grace God has shown us in giving us a high priest in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the appropriate response to those who've have received this grace, this boldness to come into God's presence, this wonderful high priest who brings our burdens to God. Well, the appropriate response is clear, isn't it? We we need to give deliberate thought to how we can spur one another on to love and good good deeds. We we need to to continue to, to gather together and provoke one another. We have responsibilities and obligations and commitments and duties, brothers and sisters. And if you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, these aren't dirty words, are they? They're simply the way that we say, Lord, I love you. I thank you for your grace to me. And I love you. Amen. Let's uh, respond by singing together of, of our desire to, to respond to the, to the manifold grace of God shown to us.